John uses the phrase, by this we know, or some iteration of that phrase 13 times. He also uses the phrase, I write these things in order that, nine times throughout his first letter. In these 22 statements, we find that John's purpose in his letter is to explain to the church the difference between authentic believers and false followers. Authentic believers are those who confess Jesus as the Son of God, who has come in the flesh to save the world from its sin. Authentic believers know they have confessed Jesus because they obey the Lord, love their Christian brothers and sisters, have confidence before, and have received the Holy Spirit who reveals the truth of Jesus to them. Well, good morning. Grab your Bibles and go to 1 John chapter 5 as we uh, come to the final final chapter of the of this letter, and we'll finish it over the next uh, couple couple of weeks. So to get us get us thinking about what's going on in this passage, uh, about 12 years ago, Georgia State uh, introduced their football team for the very first time. And when they began playing football, uh, they played in what's called Division One FCS. And those of you who don't pay attention to the structure of college football. Um, it's not FBS, which is like OU, OSU, Tulsa, but it's bigger than Division II, which is like OBU. And so uh, they, they introduced their season in 2010, and uh, they played a bunch of teams that we don't really know about, that unless you follow an FCS team, you're not going to uh, turn on the TV to, to watch them, or you're not going to really know who these teams are, or where they're at on their schedule. But at the end of the season, they had one notable game. And in their very first season, last game of the season, they would travel to Tuscaloosa to play the defending national champions, Alabama, who'd be the 10th ranked team in the nation. And during that, or in preparation for that game, what we would expect a coach to typically do is to rally his players around and to say, you know, some motivational speech, and you may be able to tell I'm not a football coach, I don't give motivational speeches, but hey, let's, let's play hard, let's keep the mental focus, let's tackle, be responsible, do your job, and if everyone does their job, we have a chance at winning the game. That's what we'd expect. But what took place was uh, the team traveled a day before, and the coach said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So what I'm going to ask is we're going to go to Alabama, we're going to go to Tuscaloosa, and we're going to tour their facilities. And I want you to see how nice their facilities are. So get your phones out, take pictures, take videos, and you can share with your kids one day that you played against Alabama. And then on Thursday night, which is when the game was, on Thursday night, let's go to the game, and I want you to take in the moment. Because rather than playing in front of hundreds of people, you're playing in front of thousands of people. And take in the moment. And I want you to play your hardest. And I want you to try your hardest. But we know we're probably not going to win this game. And it's okay. Because it's about the moment. How often in our lives do we approach our sin the same way? Like we want to try hard. We hope to accomplish something, but at the end of the day, we kind of have this feeling that when it comes down to it, just like Georgia State lost 63 to 7, sin's going to beat us 63 to 7, or maybe a little bit more. What John wants to show us this morning is that you can overcome your sin. 
that you do have victory over the world. So this is not a, I hope I can do it. But God, in his, through his spirit and faith in Jesus Christ, has given you everything you need to be obedient. So the main idea of our text this morning, the main truth I hope you get is this, is that faith in Jesus requires three things. We believe in Jesus, we love God, and obey his commandments leading us to overcome the world. And I know that's a long main idea, but throughout this series, we've emphasized three characteristics of an authentic Christian. Right belief, right obedience, and right love. And throughout the letter, John will highlight one of them, or sometimes he highlights two of the three, but now we see him highlight all three together, and his focus is on us overcoming the world. So the first truth we see this morning is that our spiritual birth enables us to overcome sin. Our spiritual birth enables us to overcome sin. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our spiritual birth enables us to overcome sin. Now, in our church, we don't have a go-to translation. Uh, every week when I preach, whether it's up here or with our students in the student building, uh, I always preach from the ESV translation. And the reason I do that is because it's simple and it's more of a word-for-word -word translation. A thought-for-thought -thought translation would be something like the NIV or the NLT, and those are good translations. But when you read 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, you see less of the phrase, has been born of, and more of the word child. And that makes sense, right? Like if you introduce your daughter, you don't say, this is Samantha, the one whom I bore. You say, this is Samantha, my daughter. Uh, whenever you introduce yourself, you don't say, hey, my name's Bob, I'm the one who bore Samantha. You say, I'm Bob, I'm Samantha's dad, right? So it makes sense to kind of have a thought-for-thought -thought translation, but sometimes we miss out on some word-for-word -word stuff and the grammar that's going on. And so when we see the phrase, has been born of, what we think about is two things. One, it's a past event that has effects in the present, but two, it's a passive event meaning we aren't the ones who bear ourselves, but we are just born. So yesterday was 21 weeks uh, for my wife and I as we come closer to having our child. So we're about at that halfway point, right? We're at that halfway point. Um, when my child is born into this world, she had nothing to do with it. She's just born, right? She just comes into existence. And the same thing with us, that when we think of our spiritual birth, it is not something that we have produced. It's not based on our works. It's based solely on the work of God that is evident and played out through our faith. And I know this opens up a can of worms, right? What comes first? Is it, is it faith in Jesus Christ or is it our spiritual birth? And what the authors of the Bible will say is, yes, both that they happen at the same time. 
Uh, For example, John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 on the screen. John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But what I want us to focus on is unless we are spiritually born again, we are not going to overcome sin. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's inclusive, everyone, but it's also exclusive that you must call on the name of Jesus Christ. But how do you get there? Paul answers that question in verses 14 through 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How do we become born again believers? It's through the preaching of God's word and placing our faith in that message. And so first off, if we want to overcome sin, we need to put our faith in Jesus, as we'll see at the end. But second, we need to understand that people in the world are spiritually dead until God's people go to them with the gospel. We can be quick to get angry and vent on social media about the sins of the world, but slow to go to them with grace and love and truth, with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. See, what happens for us also is sometimes we get arrogant about our faith, that we come to an understanding of who God is. We find our identity in Jesus and how we've been transformed. And for some reason, it leads to arrogance, as if we're better than someone else who doesn't know the truth. And we forget that God's word is not human discovery, but it's God's revelation. Moses didn't discover the law. God revealed it to him. The prophets didn't discover God's impending judgment and grace. God revealed it to them. And the apostles didn't discover the New Testament. The Holy Spirit revealed it to them. Church, the Lord has revealed himself to us like a nosy neighbor. You know what it's like to move. All you want to do is get the dishes and the cabinets. You want to get the room set up. Really, you just want to get the bed set up. And that neighbor shows up with the cookies that you're not going to eat because you don't know who she is, right? And she shows up, and it's crazy. It's chaos. And if you have young kids, they're not helping you move. You're trying to find a way to babysit them, let them play while they're still out of the way, right? But what does your neighbor want to do? Your neighbor wants to come and talk about your family and your history and your kids and will your kids like her kids or his kids and you have hobbies like and all you want to do is get everything set up. But time goes on and you pull up to your house and that neighbor comes over and so you talk for 10 minutes and then time goes on and you talk for 20 minutes and then 30 minutes and then before you know it, your families are hanging out together. And their kids and your kids are best friends. It would have been nice for your nosy neighbor not to come and interrupt you trying to move in, but her nosiness transformed your life, right? The Lord does the same way. 
that his nosiness, him intruding into our lives, it transforms the way that we live. And so we need him to move in our lives if we're gonna overcome sin. Second truth we see this morning is that we overcome sin through obedience. We overcome sin through obedience. Uh, Go back to verses two through three. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Now you may be thinking, duh. Obviously I can't be sinning if I'm also walking in obedience. But what I want you to see first is the relationship between faith and love and obedience. Now in Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 16 on the screen, Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then 1 Peter 1, 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Love and obedience and faith, they all come together. We need this spiritual rebirth in our lives, and if it's happened, then as we walk in obedience, we're protected from sin. But here's the second thing I want you to see. It's not just that your obedience now keeps you from sin now. Your obedience now keeps you from sin in the future. See, what you do now has consequences to how you behave and what you do tomorrow. For example, I love Chick-fil-A. But you know what I can't do? I can't go to Chick-fil-A, take a $10 bill, put it on the counter and tell them at Chick-fil-A to make me a double cheeseburger with grilled onions and grilled mushrooms. You know why? Because they don't serve burgers. I'm sure they'd make a great burger, but they don't serve burgers. My decision of where I'm going to go eat affects what I'm going to eat. Uh, likewise, in college, I went to OBU, and I'm not a, college, uh, not a hockey fan. I've tried to get into hockey, but it just hasn't worked quite yet. Uh, but what if I went to OBU and I came there and I said to, them, to everyone at OBU, hey, I'm a paying student, paying customer, and because I'm a paying student, um, I expect you to get a collegiate hockey team. And you are doing me wrong because you are not meeting my desires to have a collegiate hockey team. What we think is because I'm a paying customer, I therefore have the right to tell a business or an organization, this is how you ought to operate when, if we're a paying customer, we just get the product that they have given us. And we do that with our faith. God, I've given my life to you, therefore I expect all this other stuff, but here's the catch. We have all this other sin in our lives that we're not dealing with. That our mentality is, I can keep this sin in check, and it's not going to bleed over to this sin and this behavior, but the truth is, the two always interact with one another. If I want freedom from sin in the future, I need to walk in obedience to Jesus now. I can't walk in sin now and expect victory and freedom in the future. Think of David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
When we hear David and Bathsheba, the first sin that comes to our mind is David abusing his power to take advantage of Bathsheba and sleeping with her. That's what we think of, right? But if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, what you notice is it says that David went up on his rooftop when? During the springtime when they went to war. And what the author of 2 Samuel is trying to tell us is that David wasn't supposed to be on the rooftop. And it's not because it's sinful to walk on your roof. And it's not because Bathsheba's up on another roof, baby, because that was normal in that culture and context. The sin was David was not using his position of authority rightly. He was called to go to war. And when we are not responsible with the things that God has given us right now, it's only going to lead us into sin in the future. And some of this stuff may not even be sinful. Listen, having a social media account's not sinful. But I'm sure you've had moments where you scroll through that, that page and you become envious and jealous of that vacation that someone else took. That maybe you see accomplishments of another family and you're jealous that that's not you. And what we want to say is, God, help me not be envious and jealous when what we should be saying is, God, help me stay off social media because right now my heart's not ready for it. Right now it's stirring things up in me. Listen, just because something's permissible by the Lord doesn't mean that we should engage in it. Just because something God, just because he allows us to participate in that thing, if it leads us into another sin, we're being irresponsible. And, and let me give you some encouragement. I think sometimes what we think is that the temptations I face in my life and the temptations you face in your life is a, a picture of our unholiness. Listen, you can be holy and face temptation. Why? Because we see that with Jesus. That Jesus faced temptation in his life, yet he's the holiest person who ever lived. In fact, I think what we notice is that as we're pursuing holiness, the temptations get stronger. That the unbeliever, does, they're not as tempted as the believer. Because it's not a temptation, they just freely do it. But when we're trying to seek the Lord, we really begin to, to, to experience temptation in a difficult way. And what I want you to get is that you're going to face temptation in your life and don't be discouraged by that, but set your heart to Jesus, to walk in obedience to him. Make the decision that you're gonna be faithful to the Lord. Ezra chapter seven, verse 10. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I love the book of Ezra. In fact, Scott and I will be walking with you all through Ezra in the summer months. But in Ezra 7, 10, I look what the author says. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Why was Ezra able to study and to do and to teach the law? It wasn't because he was valedictorian of his class. It wasn't because he took the extra hours to study. It was because Ezra made the decision to do it. And so often in our lives, we struggle with sin because we haven't made the decision to fight it. We're just kind of winging it spiritually, hoping that when temptation comes, we kind of figure it out. Put it in a modern context, Ezra doesn't wait until Sunday morning to decide if he's going to come to church. See, Ezra makes that decision Friday night or Saturday morning. And then everything he does Saturday affects his decision on Sunday. 
He's going to make sure he goes to bed in the hour we will get up in the morning. Uh, he makes sure that he is close enough to be engaged with what's going on. He set his heart to do the right thing. And have you, have I, have we set our hearts to walk in obedience to the Lord, or are we just hoping we figure it out whenever temptation comes? The second truth we see, or third truth we see this morning, is that we overcome sin through delight. We overcome sin through delight. I love what it says in verse 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'll be honest, I don't always feel like that's true. Now, it is true, because my feelings love to lie to me. God's word doesn't like to lie to me. It doesn't lie to me. But sometimes I just don't feel that way. You ever feel like something is overhyped? You ever get on Facebook or ask some close friends and you say, hey, we're taking a trip to New York City or we're going to Dallas. Uh, where should we visit? What should we eat? And they give you all these suggestions. You're like, okay, got it planned out. We're going to do this, this, and this. It's going to be fantastic. Can't wait. And so someone tells you like, hey, yeah, you should go to the aquarium in Dallas. You're like, that's a fantastic idea. And you show up and it's the only aquarium that you know of that has more birds than fish, right? It is completely overhyped. If you plan on going, I hope you enjoy it, right? I just, I did it. It was crowded. It was chaotic. Maybe it's a restaurant. Oh, you have to go to that barbecue restaurant near the river. And so you go out of your way to go to that restaurant, and it was just okay, right? And then you come back, and they're like, what do you do? And you tell people, oh, we went here, we, went, we ate there, but it wasn't very good. And they're like, yeah, don't ever go there. That's completely overhyped. Like, you only find out that it's overhyped after the trip. It's never before the trip. Here's the thing. I think sometimes in our lives, our spiritual lives, we talk about how the Lord just, he gives us peace and he gives us comfort. And if you just put your faith in him, everything's going to work out. And it's not overhyped, but sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it feels like it's just not working out because God's commands, if we're honest, sometimes feel burdensome. And there's two reasons why. One, it's because we try to do his commands without being reborn. Maybe you've had a moment in your life where you were disconnected from the church, don't have a relationship with the Lord. And so what you did was one week, you had an awful week and you said, you know what, church it is. So you went to your kids and said, hey, Sunday morning, we're going to church. You're not staying out with friends. You're not staying up late. We're going to church. And they're like, church? I don't want to go to church. And maybe you tell your spouse that, hey, Sunday morning, we're going to church. And your spouse is like, you, church? What? We've never gone to church. And you're like, nope, we're doing it. So you go to church. You bring your family. Got your Sunday best on. You're excited and anxious. Walk in the doors. Find a seat. And guess what? You enjoy it. And you want to come back. So you keep coming to church and you hear us say how you should read your Bible and pray and you should obey God's word and how you should serve in the church and how you should find a community group or a small group and we use all that churchy lingo and so you do it and you try it and it seems like it's gonna work and then all of a sudden, boom, you get that bad news. Or those temptations you thought you had under control rear their ugly heads and it seems like it's worse now than it's ever been. And you think this whole Jesus thing's a joke. I tried that. Surely everyone else in there is faking it just like I faked it. Here's the problem. Is we equate coming to Jesus with reading our Bibles 
and praying and going to church when that stuff is the overflow of that relationship with Jesus. We never actually put our faith in him. And so the commands are burdensome. But second, they're burdensome because we sometimes see God's commands as restrictive. You ever feel that way? You see your unbelieving friends, coworkers, family members living a way of life that you want to live, and you're like, I just can't enjoy it. You got some buddies at the golf course right now, and you're here singing some songs and listening to some dude talk, right? This doesn't sound fun. You hear about the good time they had, that movie they watched that you know you shouldn't, and you, you just think you're missing out on so much. Listen, God's commands aren't burdensome. David Jackman says that God's commands are as burdensome as wings to a bird. Wings don't burden a bird, they free them. You know what's burdensome? Sin is. You know what's a burden? It's going home to your spouse every single day wondering, is this the day she finds out or he finds out what I've been doing? You know what's a burden? It's getting that bill in the mail or email or through a notification on your phone and knowing you can't pay it, not because times are tough, but because of your irresponsibility with what God has given you. You know what's a burden? Going to work every single day and knowing the dishonest things you did to make money or take advantage of your coworkers. That's a burden. What's freeing is going home every day and seeing that spouse and he or she knows the real you. You have nothing to hide. You know what's freeing? going to work every single day knowing you're doing the right thing, even if it doesn't make the most money, even if you don't get that promotion, you're doing the right thing. It's not a burden to know that every single day I'm responsible with what God has given me. It's freeing. I don't have anything to fear. I don't have anything to worry. So how do I get there? How do I find this delight? It's finding your delight in Jesus. Because God's commands, they're a microscope to God's character. As we look at the commands of God and we see through them, we see the nature and the character of God. Matthew 11, uh, my small group, my home group's walking kind of through this passage right now, but Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, it says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we come to Jesus and we encounter Jesus, we find how gentle and lowly he is. See, what you desire is not burdensome to you. Paul David Tripp, and I'll summarize what he says, but he says that whatever sits on the throne of your heart has inescapable influence over the way you live your life. You know what's not a burden for me? Coming up here and preaching. Sure, it's weighty, and it's time-consuming, and it's a big, I mean, this isn't just a speech, right? Uh, the students like to give me a hard time sometimes on Wednesdays, like, hey, good speech. Um, but they know, like, it, it's a moment where the Lord is working, and he's moving, but it's not a burden, because I enjoy it. You know what's not a burden? Watching a movie with my wife at Christmas time. You know why? One, because I like my wife, but two, she picks the good stuff. We're not watching Hallmark, and no offense, sorry, but we're watching Home Alone and the Santa Claus. Amen, right? We're watching the good stuff, and I love it, right? We're not worrying about, it's, it's not, oh, we have to watch another Christmas movie. It's like, wh which one do we get to watch tonight? And we both love Christmas. 
Baseball, 162 games a year, 18 off days. You know which one's a burden for me? It's the 18 off days where I can't watch my beloved Braves lose because we're terrible right now. What I delight in is not a burden for me. And when I delight in Jesus, it's not a burden for me to obey his commands. And find encouragement that God doesn't build his greatness upon your smallness. God isn't up there trying to just say, yeah, you're little and awful, look how great I am. Sure, God's all about his glory, and I want you to know that. He exists and he lives for his name's sake, but he also wants to honor you as his people because he delights in you. And the final truth we see this morning is that we overcome sin through faith in Jesus Christ. We overcome sin through faith in Jesus Christ. And look what he says now in verses four through five. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? The world in this context refers to Satan's dominion the general evil in the world, and your faith gives you victory. Over the last couple of years, uh, I've watched less and less basketball, uh, partly because I, I like the team sport. It's why I like baseball. Unless you have a dominating pitcher, you don't have uh, like one player take over the whole game. Basketball, you, you have that. Not so much a team sport, more about the individual. But the real, really, the real reason I don't enjoy basketball is the last 25 seconds of the game takes 30 minutes to watch right? Like some of you, like your spouse enjoys basketball and you don't. And I bet there are times where you're ready to go to bed or you're ready to leave the house and your spouse is like, let's just finish the game. And so you say, how much time is left? And what happens? Your spouse says, well, it says 25 seconds, but it may be another 30 minutes. And why is that? because they keep fouling and they keep calling timeouts and they keep reviewing every play that you know for sure in the moment that it was out on this team and not that team. It just, they drag it out. Listen, our, our struggle in this world is the same thing. The battle's, the battle's over. The battle with Satan's over. The team has won, but the other team keeps fouling. The conflict keeps going. The battle with Satan is over, but the conflict keeps going. He keeps on fighting even though he has lost. So how do we overcome that? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And next week, we're going to unpack uh, this testimony of Jesus, how we can know for sure that Jesus is who he is. But what I want you to see right now, that it is your faith in Jesus that sets you free. It's Jesus who rescues you and redeems you, and you take hold of that by faith. One of my favorite pastors to listen to and a lot of people who listen to pastors like him is, is Matt Chandler. Um, during the week, I listen to one or two sermons from him. And one thing he loves to talk about that I want to steal and use for us because it's true for me and you all um, is that he talks all the time about how he wants his church to be recognized by Satan. Uh, remember Acts chapter 19? where you have the seven sons of Sceva and they try to take advantage of the Holy Spirit by using the name of Jesus to heal people. Uh, they aren't led by the Lord, but they just think by saying in Jesus' name will heal people and they receive praise and accolades and maybe even money for their healings. So in the moment they're gonna exercise this demon out of a man, 
And this is what happens in verse 15. And the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And my question is, what would Jesus, or what would this evil spirit say to us about Jesus and our relationship to him? Would he say, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Or would he say, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, and Emmanuel Baptist Church, I know them far too well. And not because we're engaged in a relationship with him, but because Satan knows he cannot overcome us. He knows that in your household, he has no foothold. He knows in your workplace that he can't get to you because of your faith in Jesus, because you're committed to him. And listen, you don't need perfect faith. You need faith in the perfect one. Because Jesus does not call you and consider you based on the quantity of your faith. It's based on the quality of your faith. And what I mean by that is if you have faith in Jesus, it's enough. Remember Mark chapter 19, or Mark chapter 9, sorry. The man comes to Jesus with a son who is sick, and he says to Jesus, if you can, make him well. And what does Jesus say to him? If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately, the father of the child says, what? I believe. Help my unbelief. It's not about the quantity. It's about the quality. And what defines the quality is, is is that faith in Jesus Christ? What I fear is our faith is in us. Right? We're fighting sin, and what do we tend to do? bow our heads, close our eyes, put our hands together and say, dear God, help me overcome this sin, amen. And sometimes in life you need a quick prayer. God, reaching out, temptation strong, help me. But what we need to learn to do is going before the Lord and grieve for our sin. Locking ourselves in our home on a Friday night, Tuesday morning, and just going before God and weeping over our sinfulness. And when's the last time you grieved over your sin? And may we, may we be a people who are repentful. God, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am. God, forgive me. And this confession isn't just me telling Jesus. This confession is me telling others. Listen, it's Jesus alone who saves me. But what I recognize sometimes in my own life and the lives of others is sometimes when I don't tell other people my sin, here's the truth, I really haven't confessed it to Jesus. What I've done is said, God, help me to stop feeling bad about what I've done. But true confession says, God, whatever comes, whatever I'm gonna experience, God, let it be, but make me right with you and help me walk in righteousness. And may we be a people who confess. And when our faith is in Jesus, we begin to find freedom. And so this morning, you come here. And I would assume that most of us in here, we have sin that we're wrestling with and fighting. All of us have sin we're dealing with every day. And maybe this morning you recognize that this battle is still ongoing because you have yet to give your life to Jesus. You're still trying to walk with him in your own strength. In a moment when we have this time of invitation, I want to invite you to come. And I want to talk with you quickly about what Christ has done, and then we will go into this room and have a longer conversation about what it means for you to walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. And maybe you're right with the Lord, you've put your faith in Him, but you're still in this conflict. Come forward. And let's be a church that models repentance. 
and come and we go before the Lord and seek his face and ask the Lord to give us that strength to fight through faith, to maybe stir within us a delight for him and a commitment to right now to walk in obedience to whatever he calls us to do, to whatever we may face when we leave this place. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. And God, you have given us the opportunity of salvation by sending your son and revealing that truth to us. And so God, my prayer right now is that a spiritual birth will take place as we put our faith in you. God, for the one or two or maybe the many in here who have never come to you in faith, God, right now I pray is their day of salvation. And God, for the rest of us, I pray, I plead for victory over sin. God, I pray that this altar will be a place of confession and repentance. And God, may we be a church that Satan has no hold on, that he cannot take hold of us or embrace us, but may he flee from us. God, move in this place as you have done all morning. God, you're good to us. We love you in your name. Amen.